It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Everyone's Sakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to this freezing cold I can garage. See your breath. <sighs> I look like a freaking dragon right now in the garage. It's it's actually, admittedly, a lot warmer than it was because it's literally 40 degrees warmer than what it was. It's 35 right now, but it was negative five two days ago. Oh yeah, no, it's been freezing and he has to work out here because like we have absolutely no room in the house, but nope. he is dedicated to his content. Nope. So, so if you want to help me at one point in the future build a really nice office, then please continue to listen to this podcast, get this month's audiobook, buy our coffee. I'm sitting here in the cold and I feel like Tiny Tim going, please, sir, may I have some more? <laughs> but it's like, can I have some warmth, please? Hey, I have the heater. I mean, I need it. So yeah, you, know, you don't you need get it a lot any more of than it. I do, Miss Tropical but Island girl. You could have put the one on behind you. I think you forgot. Oh, no, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It is what it is here. It's because I don't want to plug that into the outlet and have it burst. We need a better facility. I'll tell you that much. But at the very least, we can still in here tell stories. And it's not so cold that we're doomed. But of course, we can all still tell stories and do um, different kinds of things. So today's story, what we were going to talk about is one of the most identifiable figures that you would have of the Wild West era. Like, this is a woman who was so amazing, so crazy. Like, she astounded the world. She did something that in a time was very difficult. She commanded the respect and honor from queens, from presidents, chiefs, generals, really all the big people of, like, history and industry. Like, a whole bunch of people knew this person's, like, this person's name. She is someone who inspired countless young women after her to be relentless in pursuing their dreams, their passion, their potential. The person that we're talking about today is Annie Oakley. Now, there's a question I actually have for you here from the beginning off of this. Um, do, you, you were really big in a little house on the prairie growing up. Yes. Did you do anything else that was like Wild West or was it more just like the settler? Rawhide. Um, just all of those old Westerns. I don't know why. So you were into, like into blanking, big Westerns. But I have no idea who Annie Oakley is. Oh, this is going to be a big one. Or maybe one I don't remember, but I watched like, my mom was obsessed with all of the Westerns. I just remember Rawhide because Clint Eastwood, but then there were like a bunch of others I watched religiously. Little bit of a side note for anyone that might be confused or to understand how cultural norms change. So in your case, you talked about with Trinidad, how you'd get shows and movies and things 10 to 20 years past when they would be in the U.S. Typically. I think so, yeah, because so, my mom was watching um, like the original Star Trek in like the 80s and they were like, wow, this is amazing. Yes. So if we're looking at time frames, Westerns were really big in the United States 
between the time frame of like the 1930s going into the 19 like 70s. So really, if you're talking about in the 90s and whatnot, when your mom would have been watching stuff, that's exactly when it would be. So it, it, does, it makes sense that you probably wouldn't have heard of nearly as much of the stuff as she probably would have in the scenario. But Annie Oakley was big, right? At the same time, we're also going to be talking about Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show, which is another very big classic name. Okay, because, I know Buffalo Bill. Yeah, pretty much everyone knows Buffalo Bill if they know anything for Westerns. But she would become very famously associated with him and with this show ever since that would happen. But to get to the end of the story, we first need to go back and talk about the beginning of all of this in a little segment that uh, we like to call getting some context, which is a thing that in history we always have to talk about because context is a very important. Yeah, I'm like, are we going to talk about Rawhide the entire time? Because I'm down. I can do it. So in 1848, you have Jacob Mosey, who is originally born as Jacob Moses, uh, about the age of 49, who marries Susanna Wise, age 18. 49 marries age eight. Okay, it was, continue. It was normal. It was fairly normal. Different times here. You would how is it? How? I just need to know. Actually, this is a segment. Maybe we just, <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll just edit this out. I'll, I'll, no, I'll put it in a little quick thing. Short of it is, it was very common throughout most of history, even to this day, for younger women to marry older men. At a different point in history, the men could be significantly older because it was usually more about an older established man trying to find a young wife to have children after he'd built up his fortune or whatever. Yeah, that's all or, I wanted to know. I just wanted to know why it was the cultural. wives died, which was very common because childbirth. I just wanted to know why it was the cultural norm. That's all. Yeah, that's it. Um, so the surnames of Moses and Mosey, right? They've been used essentially interchangeable by several different family members. This was an era where it was really acceptable for newly arrived immigrants to adopt new names for themselves because, well, I mean, this, is, this is way before modern times. Proof of identity was just not something that was required. And so it was with each generation that some people kept Mosey while others preferred to use Moses. So Jacob and Susanna would settle in Hol or in Holidaysburg, which is like this area here in Pennsylvania. And they ran a hotel for five years until the tavern next door had a fire, which then ended up burning down both buildings, which was not good for 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 them. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, no doubt the fire did help them make their decision to move. So they went and moved to Ohio. I can see the look on your face here right now. The moment I say that we all know the Ohio memes. <laughs> She's just over here like, no, I understand. So with now three other families, each of them with their own kind of covered wagon, they go and arrive near Willowdale near Greenville, Dark County in Ohio. And that was in the spring of 1855. You had Phoebe Ann Annie Mosey, who was born on August 13th, 1860, in a log cabin less than two miles northwest of Woodland, which is now Willowdale in Dark County, Ohio, a rural county that was along the state's border with Indiana. Now, her birthplace is about five miles east of a town called North Star, and there's a stone-mounted plaque in the vicinity of the site, which was placed by the Annie Oakley Committee in 1981, 121 years after her birth. That's the beginning. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In November of 1865, the owner of the farm that they were renting agreed to sell to them, changing it from a rental to a mortgage, which the owner would hold for him. As long as Jacob kept working, he could pay the mortgage. Mind you, he was 65 years old at this point. That is quite a ways away. So a month later, in December of 1865, Jacob goes and leaves home with his team of horses in order to make deliveries at Bear's Mill. He then gets caught in a blizzard on his way home, and the blasts of intense wind and snow cause him to become confused and lost. He finally arrived at home at midnight with his daughter waiting for him at the door. His hands were frozen solid with frostbite. He had entirely lost his ability to speak, and he would never recover. He developed very serious pneumonia, and two months later, Jacob Mosey would die on February 11th, 1866, one month short of his 66th birthday which leaves a very young wife, Susanna Mosey, left with six children, no income, and no way to pay their new mortgage. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah, very, very common in the day for people to just die and things to not go well for people afterwards. Annie was only six years old, mind you, when this happened. So that was, um, that was not, not great. So already living off of breadcrumbs, essentially, Susanna was very quickly overwhelmed by bills and the family lost the farm. So while they're trying to then figure out what their next move was going to be, Susanna realized that apparently she had too many mouths to feed. So she sent her young daughter, Phoebe, who now everyone was calling Annie, as well as her sister, Sarah Ellen, to live on a poor farm in the United States. Poor houses or poor farms were very common during the 19th and 20th century. This was very common in many different places across Europe. It was a place where able-bodied residents would be able to go to work for very little money, mind you. But at the very least, they would have a roof over their heads and food in their bellies. So it's similar to workhouses. Yes, it was literally a workhouse. But But on a farm. Yes. With America being significantly more rural at this point, there was many more situations where it was farms like that. So a poorhouse could even be part of the same economic complex as a prison farm or other kinds of penal or charitable public institutions. Poor farms were county or town run residences where paupers, which were primarily elderly people who had fallen down in their luck or town run residents or not or town run residents or like um, people who were disabled from the town would be able to go and work. At the public's expense. These were not profitable facilities. At least the majority of them were not. It wasn't like they were going to a place that the facility would make a bunch of money and everything was fine. They went there specifically to do an action to work to be able to provide something that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to do. Which in a way is good, but holy crap, these places were generally brutal and not fun places to be. England actually had very bad ones here with the whole purpose of the of the of the poorhouse like of the workhouse, the idea being it wasn't designed to help people to keep them there. It was designed to be unpleasant so that it would make people leave, that they wanted to work themselves out of it. 
because you didn't want people to be stuck there because then the taxpayers are still fitting the bill for it. You wanted them people to be able to move on. A bunch of people, though, would end up just getting trapped in them, and it was bad. That is a whole other thing that we would need to dive into. So these things were generally under the direction of one or more elected or appointed superintendents of the poor. And in this case, the poor farm was called the Dark County Infirmary, which, if I'm being honest, sounds like somewhere where uh, someone would imprison the rogue gallery of supervillain enemies that were typical to a superhero like Batman or The Flash. It was called an infirmary, though. The infirmary. (laughs) But now, according to her autobiography, she was initially put in the care of the infirmary's superintendent, Samuel Crawford Eddington, and his wife, Nancy, who taught her how to sew and how to decorate and how to do, you know, standard pretty things. And then beginning in the spring of 1870, though, she was bound out to a local family that needed help in order to care for their infant son on the false promise of being paid 50 cents per week, which is, mind you, the equivalent of around $11 today. $11 per week. $11 per week. I mean, I guess she was living with them. Yeah, she was living with them. She would be taking care of them. Yeah, Which also, I guess, today they also don't get paid well. It's a yeah, yeah, and it's but this was so much more exploitive, especially in the case of utilizing children. See, the couple originally wanted someone who could pump water, cook, and was bigger, right? Have you ever you remember when we uh, saw the thing for uh, Anna of Green Gables? I think was that the name? Yeah, and they wanted to send her back because she was too small. They needed someone stronger who could work the farm. It was a common thing that specifically people would be looking for. A child who would be able to work and work long, hard, horrible hours. She didn't really fit their bill. She spent about two years in near slavery to them, enduring mental and physical abuse constantly. She would regularly receive welts across her back, and later she would recall that it felt as if she was literally a slave. She was beaten for the tiniest of infractions. If she was abused in any other forms, we don't know. It doesn't say Annie never really talked about any of this publicly, so we can't be for certain. But there could have been other things that we experienced that we can't really touch upon. Annie referred to these people as the wolves. And one time the wife caught Annie, who had fallen asleep, darning some socks. And in Annie's own words, later published in her autobiography, she described the event like this. Suddenly, the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out to the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death, so I got down on my knees, looked to God's clear sky, and tried to pray. But my lips were frozen stiff, and there was no sound. Mind you, she was nine years old when that happened. So when they sent the kids from those houses over to... These families, they didn't check up on them. Like at no no point that they go, hey, I'm just going to see a wellness check. Oh, no, no. This is the 1800s here. No. The answer to that is a a big no. You wouldn't really see things for like child protective services for another century. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? 
Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Well, I'm not even saying Child Protective Services. If she was sent off to a house and then they send her away, you'd think someone at some point would just wonder. Do you remember what I said about the workhouses of England where the goal yeah. was not to help them? They the wanted goal them was to, to leave. Get, yeah. They didn't want them to stay. They wanted it to drive them out. Think of it like that. It's not a pleasant thing. Even in the autobiography, she never actually revealed the couple's real names as she would remain terrified of them for her entire life. And that trauma would sit with her again for her entire life. There's some context in this that the Wolves could have been the Studebaker family, but in the 1870 U.S. Census, that suggests that it was possibly the Abram Booz family of neighboring Preble County. We don't really know. Around the spring of 1872, Annie runs away from the Wolves, taking an opportunity to slip away from them, and she stows away on a crowded railroad car and eventually gets returned to the Dark County Infirmary, for the criminally insane. I mean, poor. Yeah. So they just had an infirmary for it before. That's that's what I was questioning earlier, because they call it the infirmary. So they just associated being poor with being ill. Mentally ill. It was a thing that could happen if people were like a, a, a whole bunch of things when people ran into issues like uh, like, let's say they had serious mental issues and were then prone to things with, say, violence or alcoholism or other things. Those could literally be chalked up as mental illnesses and a form of insanity. So people who were insane, continuously poor, not able to better themselves, not able to do any of this stuff. They were basically treated as animals. That is a very common thing throughout all of history. Not a pleasant topic, not a fun thing to get into. We could probably do an entire episode dedicated specifically to asylums and how those things became that stereotypical image that we associate in horror movies. Another one. But that's another story for another time. So taking an opportunity to slip away from them, she goes and stores away on a crowded railroad car and eventually returns to the Dark County Infirmary. There, she told the superintendent Eddington and his wife about all the different kinds of horrible things and abuse that she'd been subjected to. So they just go and send her to her mother. Now. Amazingly, or disgustingly, I guess whichever one you actually prefer, when Annie goes and shows up to her mother and explains, you know, the events of what happens to her, Susanna Mosley responds with, oh, um, oh, no. damn, that sucks. Your tire's all flat and junk. I, I can't support another child, though. Oh, did I do that yet? So Annie gets sent back to work for two more years of the Dark County Asylum for... The wretchedly destitute, because that's pretty much all that ends up happening with them. Annie was 12 years old when that happened. So she was 12 years old when she ran away. She was nine years old when she got locked out. She was six years old when she initially got sent to the infirmary. Yep. Wow. 
Yeah, all as a child, and it's just horribly messed up. So thankfully, this time, though, her care was going to be overseen by Superintendent Eddington and his wife, who, by all accounts from Annie, did treat her fairly and with dignity. She paid her way as a seamstress and returned to hunting and trapping wild game. And those experiences helped or that she had endured at the hands of the wolves would affect her so much that it would change her trajectory of her life going forward. It seemed that being self-sufficient of being able to take care of yourself, of being independent and capable of caring for your own self became the guiding principle for Annie and what it is that she would want moving forward. Because if she was dependent on other people, they were just going to abuse her. See, Annie, from a young age, had already been trapping. Like, she had been doing this since she was literally seven years old and was shooting by the time that she was eight. This being to support her siblings and her widowed mother. But now, now she had to shoot and trap and hunt like her life depended on it because it literally did. Now, presumably, of course, that is with the fact that she didn't want to have to return to the hands of the wolves or any other potential people that were going to hurt her. She says that she doesn't know how she acquired the skills, that she was just born with it. But the short of it is that she just did it. She sold the hunted game that she had managed to capture to the locals of Greenville. She sold it to shopkeepers like Charles and G. Anthony Katzenberger, who would then ship it to hotels in Cincinnati and other cities. She would sell the game to restaurants and hotels in northern Ohio. At the age of 15, she was able to leave the Dark County Infirmary for the fiscally challenged, as it would be again, and return home to the family farm. At this point, though, her mother, who, you know, had, mind you, sent her out to do with as she will. Her mom really said, figure it out, hon. Literally. Uh, Good look, luck, Chuck. There wasn't. A, I understand there was really nothing else that she could do. Really? She just there. picked her favorite or was it the oldest? It, they, she was like the youngest. She was the youngest. I think. Wait, was she? She would have to be the oldest, right? No, because it was just for those that would not be able to work the farm properly. She wasn't strong enough to actually work the farm in order to be able to produce more. So either way, she she just said bye bye. She did not care. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I understand it's the 1800s. So obviously I'm not going to look at it through this lens. But wow, it's 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 really bad no matter how you look at it. But it's people making the best of what it is that they could. Her mother, by that point, had remarried. And with her new husband, they had bought another farm. But she had been horribly behind on payments, even with her husband working. And essentially, if Annie wanted to stay, then that means that she was also going to have to help with the bills. So with a new fire lit inside of her from all the horrible experiences that she had had, she channeled all of her focus into this task and her skills paid off on the $200 mortgage on her mother's farm in less than a year. Now, mind you, this time, like that is that seems like a uh, like a really she small paid amount off of money. her mother's mortgage. Yeah. So, oh, my gosh. She's also a good person. Selfless, humble, forgiving. Because we also think about this here. 50 cents at the time. Now, obviously, it's probably worth a little bit less then. But if you want to use the, the comparison to it, 50 cents uh, was the equivalent of eleven dollars today. So that means that if it's 400 times that. Then we're talking about something where that was a mortgage that was around $5,000. That was the total amount of money. 
But still, she paid it off in less than a year for her mother. I oh, think yeah. you're focusing on the wrong thing. No, but it's still an impressive thing to do considering the destitute status that she had. Like, it took insane skills to be able to do so. So her skill, her speed, her efficiency, everything that she did, her sheer output of wild game earned her a lot of notoriety in the region because that is very impressive to be able to do. And she was 15 years old when she did this. Like, seriously, her mother didn't really deserve her considering everything that she had to go through. So one of the things uh, our editor who was helping us with this, Timmy. he got uh, some pictures of the people. So, Gabby, check check this out uh, for anyone who probably doesn't see. We might even put it up on YouTube when it goes out. Uh, this is this is the mother. She doesn't look like she deserved it. Like, no. she doesn't look like an especially mean person. She just looks like someone who life has been harsher to when she did I understand. She did what she had to do. She just looks like she's been through it. You know that stereotypical image that you'd associate of like the the spinster, the stepmother who who's going to beat her children? Yeah. She looks exactly like that. She looks like the archetype that you would see in a novel. She does. She looks like the um the headmistress. Yes, of like a, that, that, you're right. That's the one. She looks yeah. like the headmistress of a uh, serious like Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic school. I went to um, Catholic school with like, you know. The nuns that would actually hit with the rulers. My, I guess it would be my second grade teacher. She beat us with sticks. Oh my God. Can I say that on YouTube? Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, it happened. It was so. an experience that you had. You're talking about it. You're it not- wasn't really sticks. It was wooden rulers. So. Yeah, that's more likely what it would end up being. It's worse because wooden rulers are thicker than just a stick. Yeah. So uh, the next bit of trivia here is brought to you by the wonderful friends over at Historical Context Land. Apparently, at some point in American history, entertainment was kind of scarce to come by. I mean, you all are listening to this podcast right now, and which I guess is enjoyable to you or maybe horrible, horrible and scarring, depending on what episode you're listening to, especially considering the topics that we're talking about. But there was people really needed entertainment. It was not until recent times that it was so widely available, at least in its more complex forms. So for many people in the 1870s and the 1880s, one of the most popular things that people would do as like entertainment was to go and watch shooting contests like everyone would do it. It was showing off a skill. It was super trendy. It was fun. Men would buy new hats and suits for the day. People would take dates to the events instead of Netflix and chill. It was more like shotgun and skill. Yeah, I'm wiggling my eyebrows. The podcast is going silent right here. I'm wiggling my eyebrows right now at the camera. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the short of it is the public loved it, right? Sharpshooters would tour the country. They would set up town in a, or they would set up shop in a town and they would challenge anyone who wanted to go after them with contests of marksmanship. And in those days, professional shooters were people like Doc Carver evil spirit of the plains or captain bogadaris like there was bogardis bogardis this is like wrestlers it was, it was, it was wwe, it was WWE putting on a show doing all this like oh yeah they're there to also you're yelling into the mic and you're supposed to tone it down a little bit when you do i might be doing that here because i'm getting <laughs> sorry excited. guys i'm adopting my wwe announcer video like i'm, I'm just going into uh, macho man randy savage oh yeah wait did i just become the kool-aid man right oh yeah I might have just become the Kool-Aid man. You did, man. the Kool-Aid man. Okay, continue. Who's so, Bogardus? So Bogardus was a world shooting competition winner who was famous for pioneering the use of color-tinged spherical glass target balls. So Bogardus also had four sons, all of whom eventually became marksmen and would tour the world with him. And it was Bogardus all the way down with these guys. Anyway, 
One of the most skilled, entertaining, popular shooters of this time was an Irish immigrant by the name of Frank Butler. Butler had moved to America at the age of 13 and began developing a shooting act shortly after. He would travel the U.S. trying to make a name for himself, and in his early 20s at the time, Frank Butler was a very charismatic, he was talented, and he was pretty easy on the eyes. He was a handsome guy. Okay, so they said a shooting show, right? So was it like the WWE where it's a show? So it's not fully like they're not 100% trying to kill each other, but it looks like they are. So they're putting on more of like a Well, they're not shooting each other. Show. They're shooting targets. So I know. Like, so is it just like something they scripted, I guess? Well, there would be an act set. Like, for example, that guy that we were talking about before that would use the colored spherical glass. Think about this. Glass ball gets launched into the air. It's super brightly colored so that when it gets fired and basically turned into a powdery mist, it's almost like a firework going off in the sky. That is really cool. That's that's the idea of it. That's what they would do. I wish I could see one of those. Uh, maybe they still do it. I don't know if they do it at gun shows now. We see advertisements literally if every you other guys week. Know if they do these things, let me know because last time I said I wanted to listen to old time like radio shows and someone messaged like email. They sent in an email about it. You're right. On they how did. to do that. So they thank did. you. <laughs> thank you so much. So this guy, Frankie B, he posts up in a hotel in Cincinnati and he starts talking to some of the local farmers over some beers when he hears of some farmers claim that they have someone from their county who's a really good shot and that they bet a hundred bucks. So I guess the equivalent of that point around $2,500 that Butler couldn't beat them. So initially our young marksman laughs at the thought and that some kind of backwoods shooter could somehow surpass his showmanship like abilities. But of course he needed the money. He needed to do all this. So he took the bet. Of course he was not ready for what was going to Come and meet him. But then again, no one else really is when they uh when they meet a very wild woman. I'm okay, I'm not going to listen. My I'm just mic like, was muted. I'm just, I'm just looking at you as I say that. Wow. Okay. So our dashing Mr. Butler goes and heads to this competition with hundreds of spectators. And what does he encounter? Not a man but rather a young lady who was only five feet tall and weighed around a hundred pounds. And naturally you have this guy that is around all the other men who are sharpshooters for the entire time. And this whole thing, he just recounts later as being like, yeah, um, I, I was kind of taken off guard there. I wasn't expecting that. So it was a big surprise. It was, it was, um, it was, it, it was really a crazy moment for them to meet each other like this in, in a way that no one ever really expected to happen. Kind of like, you know, how we um, we met on Tinder from our. You don't have to be telling them all of that. I mean, we <laughs> met on forward here, but the crazy thing of it is because I didn't try to seduce you as many people on there would. And I was deleting the app and you were deleting the app. And I was like, OK, this idiot, what is he talking about? You don't have like elephants uh, rugby breaking ice. No, the initial message you said. No, it was like Tuesday. Yes. Because you know how they gave those icebreakers? Yes. You were like, uh. I think they got it wrong because it's a Sunday or something ridiculous like that. I'm like, yeah, they yeah. just gave you one that didn't fit. Idiot. How much does a polar bear weigh? Enough to break so the ice. And I it was your there, fit for this day. And I was like, this, it's not that day. What I came the hell is in there trying about? to be like ridiculously sassy. And you were like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't know what to say. And you just started talking to me. And I was like, OK, <laughs> I guess I'll talk to him. I have nothing else going on. And now look at us now. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, he started talking and didn't shut up. And now we're married and he's still Talking, talking and don't shut up. Yeah, that's why you all are listening to me literally right now here. So Annie goes first and tosses up her first shot. Hits. Butler then responds in kind. The shooters begin to get into a kind of a rhythm. 
targets start being demolished. The audience is cheering and is going on like, oh my God, they're still shooting it. What's it up to now? 14? They just keep on going. It's it's like if they were having a competition, you know, where your brother loves to go and continuously shoot things for like uh like hoops, like for shots from the free throw line. Imagine two people doing a competition for just like an hour just straight no, they can't match the other it's like playing a game of horse and no one can get a letter because they just keep on hitting every single shot and that's just what they're doing but now things are starting to get serious they both hit over 20 shots in a row and this is where fatigue really starts to set in because you have to remember they've been holding their weapons they've been panning quickly across the sky with deadly accuracy for like an hour at this point it takes a lot out of you it is it is pretty hefty and for you have those kind of scenario where you are the adrenaline is pumping and you are battle ready and you are trying to do everything that you possibly can at any given moment to watch a target it really takes a lot out of you it really does so their arms are burning there is sweat coming off their brows 22 shots 22 shots 22 hits Everything is still hitting. Their eyes are getting tired. They're squinting. They're trying to figure things out. 23. Maybe your trigger finger at this point is not quite as smooth when it's pulling as when it began. 24 shots. And then it happens. Butler goes to make his 25th shot. And he misses. To Annie. To Annie. The crowd takes a sharp inhale to wait and see what happens because now it's all up to her. Annie would later admit that she had paused. She closed her eyes for an instant to just savor that little moment. Saying that she knew she was going to win. And then she aimed up and dared something, anything, to cross her field of view. Until, lo and behold, the 25th target makes an appearance and she blows it to smithereens. The crowd goes wild. Literally, the crowd goes wild. Okay, but for someone to say that, like, oh yeah, it's down to like... The, the moment, you know, like to, the pressure of that. And she's like, oh, I knew I was going to win. That just shows how freaking badass she was. Mm-hmm. Because one thing about me is I cave. I mean, I work well under pressure, but if it's like something like a shot or we're bowling, I'm going to cave under that pressure. You know what I mean? But it's if it's not like a steady workflow, it's like the moment of this is a super right. important thing. But if Don't it's like screw a it up. time limit. I can do well with that time limit, but mm-hmm. I cannot do well with like, you have one chance to get this one shot. Oh that, yeah. There's a big like, difference. Do you remember those? watching the world cup and mm-hmm. all of those French players, they just kept going up there and you can see they were so young. They were like caving under the pressure. Everyone was cheering. They were sweating and they were just like the penalty. Kicks. It was just awful. Oh, it was absolutely. awful. You're a soccer player, you know, like you could see they caved under that pressure. She was like, Oh no, I got this. <laughs> I'm going to win. And so you may wonder then, okay, so what does Butler do? What is this guy who is trying to make a name for himself? Who's this big famous shooter who's just lost to like a 16 year old girl? This point, I believe she's 16. He does at this what point. any guy who just got horribly, horribly emasculated by a woman does. He falls in love. Yeah. True love. The match of a lifetime. Wait, is that a normal thing for it to happen? I guess. This I don't know. What happens but, with you? What, what do you mean it happens with me here? I talked until you fell in love with me. Yeah. Okay, but that was not my plan. If it wasn't your plan, then therefore that means that I won. Because I beat it. It was my plan. Oh, no, but you said that. I asked you out. I was was being sarcastic. Okay, let's go back to their (laughs) love story. This is not about us. 
Come on. We are revealing way too much lore about ourselves right now. They don't need to know. If this they don't need to know about yet. it. We're going to get a whole bunch of comments or emails that are saying we need the full video lore. We, we, We're we not going to tell you the whole story. It is ridiculous. It ends with an elopement, not telling anybody we were married for months. You don't want this story. It's just, it's a lot of lore. So yes, he falls in love. He knew he was done for. He had no chance. It was game over. It, that, that was it. So our newly defeated traditional protagonist, Frank, just has to find a way to see this mysterious young woman again. And so he offers her tickets to his show. <laughs> you know, the girl that just beat him. He's like, come on. I know you're amazing, but you can come watch me be cool. Right. I, I, I'm cool. I promise. Mm -hmm. Like, look at me. <laughs> That's him. You see, Butler had recently been touring with a traveling circus to both feed himself and also get effective transportation to the wilder portions of the country in order to see what American shooters are really made of. This time, of course, he got a little bit more than he had bargained for, no doubt, but the allure kind of spread both ways. If we put ourselves in Annie's shoes here for a second, it kind of makes sense. This is an experienced guy. He's into the same things that she is. He respects her, doesn't treat her as some kind of novelty. And most importantly, he feels safe to her. And after the years and years of abuse and struggle, she really needed a place and a person with who she can feel safe. That was a big thing for her. Or she was just looking for someone who felt yeah. safe. And none of this is to say that Annie needed a man or anything like that. It's like she was striving for love. She wasn't some lost princess who was in trouble and needed help. It's like she, for her own sake of sanity and mental well-being, needed something else that she could attach herself to. Family, obviously, had not been something that had been good for her. She didn't have anything in the way necessarily of a steady job to devote her to. She only had her skills. And while she could use those skills... There wasn't really anything or anyone that she could share that with. So what did I do in the 1800s? Did I just walk up to the dude they like and go, ankle? <laughs> I don't know. I work in a lab, so we can't show ankles. So honestly, I work in a lab. It worked in the 1800s. You wow a man by like, look, at, look, look at these bad boys. My feet. <laughs> so the courting process uh, the courting process immediately did begin, right? Immediately. Immediately. And much like a character from a very famous Broadway musical, Butler would have thought, I, I am not going to miss my shot. And he didn't. Credit where credit is due to Frank Butler. If you marry the greatest shot in the world for your day and age, you better have decent control over the words that are coming out of your mouth or else they very well could be your last. She would not have taken him out if she took... All of that from those two people, the wolves. I feel like she has a, a tolerance for a lot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that like, give she didn't Addie have a some gun credit. at that age. Oh, that's that's fair. Well, no, she would have though because she was shooting. To she probably wouldn't have been allowed to keep it. It was back on the farm. She oh, knew how to. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, she knew how to. So uh, yeah, so this new with or within a year of them meeting, right? They get married. So this new couple then goes and hits the road, and it gets back on the circus traveling show thing that Butler had already been performing in. Butler had previously been performing as a kind of two man show with another famous local shooter by the name of John Graham. But one night Graham was sick, so he had to miss a performance. So Frank then goes and asks Annie to instead fill in for him. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, Please. Now, now at this point, Annie had just been playing the assistant role here, tossing up, holding targets for Frank to shoot. She wasn't part of the show. Like she was there, but she wasn't like 
one of the big figures in it. It's you and me. Oh my God. You're like, oh, I can talk all day. And I'm like, I'm just like in the background pulling all the strings. Do you have any idea? For Everyone it? thinks I'm so dumb. I'm sorry. We get so many emails and messages from different things in here that are people who are like, um, why is she even there? And then we get other messages that are like, oh my God, she's totally relatable. I, I, I listen to this exclusively for her because you're like the person that. Okay. So this is the history of everything podcast. And we're going to give a little history here. The only reason he even started making content is because he would talk my air off about all of this <laughs> stuff. And like, obviously I got straight A's in college. Okay. Like I aced history, but I it's not, not something I'm interested in. Like I took all of these history classes. I took, I took all of the classes cause I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I was a biochem major and I was like, whatever. And so I aced all of my history classes. Like I'm not an idiot. But he will talk nonstop about history. And I was like, okay, I need you to talk to anybody else because I need like five minutes of silence. So I just started recording him. Like literally one day I was, someone asked a question and I, like a TikTok comment. And I had like four, no, I had like 500 followers on TikTok. And I was like, you okay. You had a couple thousand. You had a no, couple thousand. No, we had made, I had made a joke. We made a joke about the Wing Tussars. I had like 500 when I made oh. that joke. And you were like, oh, if you get to 10,000, I'll get you a dog. And I was like, bet. So someone asked in there as a joke because it was trending at the time, like Spartans versus Mongols or something like that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to ask him this. We were literally out back with our daughter in like the swing. And I was like, hey, babe, who will win? And he blew up literally. And then he was blowing up on my page. So I'm like, make your own account because I just want to post memes and jokes and so he started posting history content and literally he posts one video and he was, it got 3000 views and he was like, oh, they hit my content. I'm done. I'm like, can you just post more? I like, didn't understand how TikTok or any of that stuff I literally just said post more content, like best case scenario, at least five people hear it. And so he just started posting and then they started blowing up. Like it started going and going and going. And I did not expect this. I just thought, because he was working in the lab with me. He is not a science minded person. He's not a medical person. The, everything he knew about science and medicine was probably outdated by a good three or 400 no, years to be fair. Stuff he learned from me because he would help me study for all of my like it's biochem true. exams, immunology exams. So he shows up like he shows up to this job interview for a medical diagnostics lab. <laughs> They're asking him all these questions and he's answering them because anything he reads, listens to or learns, he remembers and so he gets this job and he hates it. Like he, he didn't mind it, but it was not anything he wanted to do. So this was like his outlet. TikTok was his outlet. And it all came into play because I was like, please shut up. There is a joke from all this that I have to mention like, because it's my favorite me. little detail of anything ever. And this is a completely side note, completely related to anything else. But it's the best possible thing that I've heard that has ever happened to me in like an interview. So when I was initially being interviewed for that job, I was handed a sheet a test was pointed at and I was asked, okay, what type of test is this for? Blood. How did you know that? It, it, it says blood on the sheet right above it. Honestly, when I do job interviews, <laughs> you're so embarrassed. When, no, when I interview employees, it's basically critical thinking skills. Like how fast can you think? How fast can you respond to me? Like sometimes I just ask like random questions. So like he, maybe he did it on purpose. I don't know. Maybe. But yeah, I literally did all of this to get him on TikTok and then kept pushing him because he was like, oh, this is just for fun. And I'm like, you can do this for a job because you have the personality. You love 
he loves history and he has the knowledge and people accuse him of like not knowing like when I ask questions like oh he looked it up no he didn't he's actually just that ridiculously anal about his history facts love you though Anyway, back to the story. Back to the story. So let's see. Uh, Annie had been serving as the assistant, yes. right? Uh, so she's tossing up, holding up targets for Frank to shoot. And then what happens then is Frank, maybe it's because he's in front of her or something, but he starts to mess up. He misses his shots. He misses quite a number of shots by a lot badly, which is pretty embarrassing for an expert marksman. He just really wasn't on his game that night. He's like, my life's here. I cannot concentrate. And the audience noticed so he starts getting booed. The crowd really starts turning on him. And a bunch of spectators start shouting things like, oh, let the girl shoot. Uh, maybe she knows how to handle a gun better than he does. Right. So Butler, who is fed up with all of their shit, decides to go ahead and switch places with his wife, knowing full well that she is fully capable of doing this. She then proceeds to perform every single trick shot that Butler had tried and missed in rapid succession with no hesitation, striking all of them. And the crowd goes wild. Literally, it was something that if you're looking at it, it sounds like it's planned, right? It sounds like something that they set up beforehand to just really bring her in. But no, it just, it just so happens that she manages to literally save the day or night, I guess. Actually, I'm not sure what time of day or night this thing took place in. But either way, it just completely turns things around. It was also at this time that Annie decided to go and take a stage name, something borrowed from her paternal grandmother. So from that moment forward, she would forever be known as Annie Oakley. But when meeting people in person, she would refer to herself as Mrs. Frank Butler. Okay, so did they, did she just end the other guy's career, like the Butler Graham show? I think we're going to get into that here. We got to remember the idea for a circus, a circus to have a couple shooting thing where it's like a husband and wife who are like the fame shooters. She just ended that other dude's career. It is, it is way more valuable for a show to have. Like, I'm just going to say <laughs> this right now. Like if they were, you know, a couple that were lion tamers or something else like that, like we're going to completely disregard the entire history of circuses and a lot of the abuse and other things they would go through for it. But the idea of a couple doing something as an act together is a really big deal. So it is, again, time for the best part of the show, which is... Context! Context! Getting some context. You see, the world in which uh, Butler and Oakley would set out on tour was a very interesting point in society at this time. All this entertainment and vaudeville and sideshow stuff, that was something that was primarily being consumed by men. These were the ones who were going out for, like, the big crazy shows, like the wild entertainment and since we're already operating at the rather extreme points of human talent and ability, if some of the performers were also dressed provocatively, so to speak, then everyone might just turn a blind eye to any other kind of weird mess ups or things that they might do. So they were just okay with, okay, you're not that great, but you're but basically you're, sexy. you're hot. You're hot. So, so nothing that's important. has changed between then and now. No, cool. No, welcome to human history. I'm going to stay history. fully cloaked up because I bring nothing to the table. Write that down. Hey, you beautiful. It's also just freezing in here, to be fair. Uh, so like, were most of the women's acts sexual? There would be a number of things that were sexual themed. It didn't necessarily mean anything like everything was, but there was a lot of stuff associated with women in circuses that would be tied around sex or ability. You got to think with some of the crazy stuff with the with like gymnasts or like the ones who are like contortionists who would be contorting their body. Trapeze into all artists. Kinds of, 
Yeah, and how they'd be dressed and everything, and everything was designed I'm to draw the Annie attention. Did not go the way of the, uh, you know. No, but we'll get we'll get into it because she's a whole story with this. So a lot of the acts that were being performed by women would have a kind of air of sexuality or seediness, and the women who would in it would have to carry themselves like that. She, though, did not really want to do that. What she would do was intentionally base her clothing in the manner in which she carried herself in a way that she wanted to be separate from the idea of those shows. She essentially would wear something serious. She would wear a type of uniform or a trademark, something that would be her own design. Like, I think she maybe had a little more choice because she was working with her husband. Um, yeah. So she did have his like protection, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. It wasn't something that she was, she was completely on her own and beholden to the whims of other people like so many others were who were kind of trapped in positions. What would happen here, what she would show was something straightforward. Like think... Steve Jobs wearing a black turtleneck and jeans is just that that was the standard look of what he did, except in her case, something much more interesting and fashionable. What she would do is wear long calf length skirts with tasteful leggings that were underneath. She would have long sleeves and all of her outfits. She would have the sickest gloves that you would have ever seen that would reach all the way up to her forearms. It was something that was like. Have you ever seen that image of um? Oh, how do I even put this here? It reminds me of a thing of like Pippi a horse. long stocking is what I'm getting from this vibe. Almost. But Do you know what like long stocking with your color, like the dress with your long leggings and she'd have different colors, socks and. But I'm also thinking equivalent to like a, a, a Victorian ladies, like horseman riding outfit. You know, yeah. with like those long gloves that they well, would be the wearing. Gloves, but those but are the like outfit is more gloves. like hippie, like what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I completely understand that. So she just, she covered up. Yeah, that her, was it. Her entire body was covered. Basically, up she from wanted to probably to make it more about her skill than her body, which correct. I feel like at some point in life, a lot of women have felt that correct. way. She would also to show off her skills or at least to laud them. She would go through an assortment of different shooting medals that she had won. She would like have different ones just on her chest at different points that she would be wearing depending on what it is that you know, she was doing. I'm just picturing her as a rapper showing up with all these Literally, gold chains. It was, it was just, imagine just <laughs> strings upon strings of medals going around. It was the equivalent of, you ever seen a North Korean official? Like the military officials? You ever see how the the big military Where generals Where would I have, see one? Where would I, I if know, I had news or something. one, what? I don't watch the news, first of all. That's very <laughs> depressing. Okay, but you've seen pictures of generals and they have all like the medals and stuff going down their chest. There is a habit in history of very domineering autocratic countries with heavy military presence like North Korea and others where the generals, the medals that they're wearing are like 10 times the amount of other countries. So it looks like there is more medals than there is shirt on their clothing. And it was a common way to just say, oh, yes, this is how great we are, how great and awesome and powerful our leaders are when in reality they weren't. Do you think they like earn those medals or do they just give oh, them no, out? They, don't. they just pretty much would give them out here or they would have something small. How do and I would sign earn a really up to month. be given some medals? Do I have to go there? Do I have to be like, hey, bestie, you medal me up. I mean, I'm sure you could. There was actually a case of a person who went and became like a star in North Korean media because he initially defected to North Korea. So he played like in North Korean movies. And this is a whole so, sideshow from all this. Hypothetically, if I wanted to run away from my job, say it was really stressful, you, can I just defect to North Korea? You could be a movie star in North Korea as long as you're willing to say horrible things all the time about any country that they dislike. 
Who do they dislike? Everyone. Pretty much. I can do it. I can do it. This is my job. That happened to the guy. He was basically held captive there for years before escaping. Oh, we can go into his story another time. That would probably be a fun one. But back to Annie Oakley, because I'm getting a little distracted again. You know, the look of horror on your face as you're realizing like, oh, wait, that actually yeah, happened. Yeah, I don't want really to get held captive. Like I was thinking more of like I show up and I did some No movies, one just shows and up and then willingly leaves North Korea, at least not usually. Doesn't happen to like that typically. So her entire body was covered from head to toe, right? And she would wear that massive selection of different shooting medals that she had won around her like the equivalent of what you would associate with say a rapper who was wearing their chains it's just it's just really is crazy here in fact in fact we got a picture of oh, it she was super so pretty so look at that she does look like a military official with she all of those medals I, see i see? like it so we got a picture of this right now you're not going to be able to see this if you're listening to the podcast but if you are on youtube we will have james play pretty please put them in yes there is a lot that is there So she had this frontier influenced uniform that would very frequently include details such as moccasins that were inspired by the native populations, as well as local hunters. Her gloves would be based on gloves used by cowboys and marksmen. Her hat would give a nod to the Western frontier as well. And again, she was five feet tall and a hundred pounds. She was tiny, but she oozed the confidence of Clint Eastwood as like if this was a Greek God filtered through the survival abilities and essence of this little petite woman. Her look could be adapted to basically make anything that she wanted, right? She could make herself look more mature. She could make herself look more childlike. She could make herself look more like a damsel in distress. If she was going to be putting on something for some kind of show, whatever she wanted to do to just blow the minds of whoever it is that she was about to put a show on in front of. She could just modify it however it is that she wanted. And so it didn't take long for Frank to realize that the crowds were going nearly as crazy for his wife as he had. So he did something unheard of in that time and place. He stepped away. He let her basically take over the show and instead became his wife's assistant as well as manager. Like he could see he wasn't an idiot. He loved her and he saw exactly what was happening. Now, it was his actual job to toss up or to hold up targets for Annie to shoot. He also handled all the finances for the show, as well as the writing articles, the press releases, anything that he could do to promote her. He adored Annie and he understood that if he stayed prominent in the act, it would be something that would distract from her popularity and her beauty. So he knew that he didn't have that same star-like quality there. Like he was skilled. He was good, Please. but not to the same degree. Is every spouse of the person with the showman personality just like. If you're putting on a show, you have to use the showman. Of course. It's kind of the point. Yeah. No, literally. I can see your faces. You're looking at me about this here. Okay. If anyone, if anyone, <laughs> it's weird how things transition. We talked earlier about TikTok in here. I'm not sure if it's going to be cut out of this or not, but if, if you go back to like the initial first TikToks that my wife was producing, very, very different for the first several months before I came into the picture and it just kind of transitioned from there. It's a, it's a different thing. You have the personality for it. I'm more of the back burner. Like I, 
tell you what to do, what content to make, yeah, when to that, make content. Lost. It's true. But I'm that, not like, lost. I don't have the showman personality. So like, obviously he realized, hey, I don't have what it takes to make this, you know, popular, but you he do. He had the ability though, to make sure that every kind of thing on the back end was taken care of so that they would be set. And it worked. He did well. Frank adored her and he was going to do whatever he could to help her. So the Annie Oakley experience, as it essentially had become at this point, it starts to tour the country and gets picked up by bigger shows that were all, you know, all over the way. And they're just moving in to different shows, different circuses over the next few years, traveling from place to place. In 1884, they're hired on by the Sells Brothers Circus, which is one of the largest and most well-known acts in the country. And even though it was a huge step up from the smaller shows that they'd been performing in with circus life, it was still difficult. And the pay was also unreliable. It wasn't something where it was a steady nine to five or anything like that. It would be noted that for the rest of her life, Annie was always trying to get more secure in terms of finances, fighting for fairer, more equal pay for the day's work, regardless of what kind of gender you had or your heritage or any of that. What mattered was that you were putting on a first-rate, great show for people, that quality of the entertainment, the one that could appeal to all ages, that she wanted just, she wanted something great. That's what she worked for. So November of 1884 rolls around, and the circus season ends. Annie and Frank are now in New Orleans, and they're trying to decide, all right, well, what are we going to do next? That is when Buffalo Bill's Wild West show rolls into town. Wait, is this the, uh, is this the World's Fair? No, almost. Remember, this is 1884. The other one with the Chicago World Fair, if you right, have not listened to that episode, yep, do show. It's great. This is, that is in 1893. So like 10 years later, she was still doing this? Yeah. It was a big deal. Like these people travel. Think about this right now. You have celebrities. I feel like over that are, time, you'd get worse at it. You would think so, or in the case of shooting, especially with you starting out so young, your skills are honed to get even better over the years before they start to falter. You have to remember here, this is also prior to the My days- My nearsightedness cannot relate. Oh yeah, so. no, it wouldn't work out. If you have some kind of medical issue, you're definitely gonna run into trouble. This is also prior to, you know, television or anything like that. This stuff isn't being really recorded and disseminated around the, around the country. So everywhere they show up, it's like something big and brand new. So they can just keep on going with the show. That's why it's a traveling circus. You don't set up shop in one place and then you're done. You have to keep on going. So this new thing rolls into town and all the children are happy. Everything is great. And it's huge. It's a really big deal. I don't think people would understand just how revolutionary the show was. So in order to understand that, we have to step back a little bit from Annie Oakley and we have to talk about Buffalo Bill. Like Buffalo Bill Cody, the, the, the OG, the original big guy here that we would associate with the West, even though this is well towards the end of the Wild West as we would know it. So Bill Cody was an American legend in the flesh by the time that Frank and Annie had met him. He was born back in 1846 as William Frederick Cody, and he started working at the age of 11 following his father's death. That was for anyone confused on any of this for like children starting out work at a young age. Yeah, that was very common. That was very common for fathers and mothers and whatnot to just die. And now the children are working. Can you imagine how we had a nine to five at the age of 11? 
It was hard enough having a nine to five by the age of 24. Theirs were probably more like a nine to nine or nine to 11. So 12 to 14 hours. Yeah, you made it worse. Yeah, 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 definitely. So he started working at the age of 11 and he became one of the writers of the Pony Express, which for anyone who recognizes it, it's a really big deal. He boasted the fastest, like this was the fastest way to get really any kind of message or item or anything that you needed across the country. Because what would happen with the Pony Express is that they would use relays of riders and horseback that would tear across the country at fast speeds to get to a target. See, before when you had mail systems that would go by train, if there were no train tracks heading in that direction, you had to use a rider. But a single person riding their horse day in and day out to travel hundreds of miles, that would take a long time because the horse can't move at a sprint for that entire duration. You know what would have helped them? The Telegraph from the 1890-something World Fair. Telegraph could also not send physical items, but you're thinking of the telephone. Well, yeah, but they also talked about the telegraph. Yes. Well, they did have it because it was, um. well, the telegraph had been used since the Civil War. Yeah. It had been used for quite a while. There was, oh, oh no, what was it? What was it? Um, the, the not the phonograph. What was that? It was item? that Morse code thing. Remember? Well, well, there was a thing for Morse code, but it, what it did is it transmitted actual sound because they played a symphony. What was oh, it? Oh, I don't remember. I can't remember the name of it. Now, oh, crap. Anyone who's listening to this right now is going to be like, ha, ha, ha. You like, just did this episode. Yeah, but we did that episode weeks ago, and now I forgot <laughs> the name of this item. Crap. That's going to bother me. We can listen to the episode later. You can listen to your sweet, sweet, beautiful voice. I know you're saying that in a serious way, but it sounds mocking. <laughs> it's a feature, not a bug. So that's the Pony Express, right? Um, and it could get the letter, like a letter or an item or whatever you're trying to get across the continent in 10 days, which that is a really big deal because it was, it was a sprint. It was constant. Like the Pony Express was fast. It was just run, 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 run for the entire time because it was relay points where you would sprint for, what was it? What was the duration? Was it 15 miles? Was it 20 miles? I can't remember the exact distance, but it was something relatively short that the horse could run at for the entire duration. So then about 18 months into his existence, then you have the first transcontinental telegraph was invented and the entire thing was made irrelevant. See? Yes. See? Yes. But we're talking about at this point is when he was young. So that is like the 1850s, like late 1850s here where that's going on. Um, so that all being said, the Pony Express still does hold a very special place in the lore of the American West due to the fact that in order to ride such long distances out in the wild, the ability, the skills, the knowledge, the endurance of the rider, of the horse, of everything had to be exceptional. And so once while working in Wyoming, Bill found out that his relief rider had been killed en route to his leg of the trip. Cody went to find him and then came back from Red Buttle Station to Rocky Ridge Station nonstop. That was a distance of 322 miles, and that was completed in 21 hours and 40 minutes. He had to swap out horses for a fresh mount 21 times and was 16 years old when that happened. That is insane. To be able to ride that long. People think like, oh, you're riding an animal. That's not going to be so hard. No, you've the ridden horses extensively. that go in. It hurts, it hurts after a while. It does. Because you have to hold yourself like on that animal. Like if you try to just, 
you know, let go, you're going to fall off of that horse. Like, I'm sorry, they're not waiting for you. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So in the late 1860s, then Cody takes a job supplying meat to Kansas Pacific Railroad workers during his stint uh, or and during his stint as this. He had a competition with another fellow hunter that was doing the same job who went by the name of Bill Comstock. And they had a contest between them as to, well, who was going to be the best. And the winner was going to gain the exclusive rights to call themselves because they all had to have their own moniker and nickname for it. Buffalo Bill. And both men at that point had been called that by the railroad workers, which was kind of a confusing thing. And if you're trying to make a name for yourself as a shooter and like a big figure, it is really annoying if there's another person who is also calling yourself that. And so they determined this by having a Buffalo shooting competition. Cody was carrying a Springfield model 1866 that he had named Lucretia Borgia, which is hilarious because people aren't going to understand that historical reference, but that was the daughter of a Pope of which there are charges of incest and all different kinds of things in there. There is it's a whole wild story. I can see the look on your face. There is all it's the Borgias. We could do an entire podcast dedicated to the Borgias. Another one. Cody had a better strategy than Comstock. And he ended up winning the competition 68 to 46 killed. Yeah, mind you, between these two guys, they killed 100 buffalo by themselves as a competition just to see who got a name. That explains so much. Yeah, welcome to the history of the Wild West. That was uh, that was a thing that definitely happened here. It was also reported that 18 months from 1867 to 1868, Bill brought down himself over 4,000 buffalo. And while these are really Horrible figures for us now to really think about it. At the time, that was his job because he wasn't just doing this to like, oh, I'm doing it for the sake of killing them. Like you'd see for people that would be pointing guns out of the window of trains and shooting buffaloes they pass for entertainment. No, he was doing it to feed people, right? He was doing it literally to feed the railroad workers. So he was going out there hunting the buffalo and then taking them back. Like that was the whole point. They didn't have tofu. It, it is what it is. I also I can't imagine a railroad worker in the 1860s eating tofu. That sounds Tofu's ve- good. What do you, what do you have against uh, tofu? I a lot. I have a lot against tofu. All right. The only good tofu is fried tofu, and that's with like some good spicy sauces on it. Ha. Huh. So in 1869, then, Ned uh, or Bill meets a guy by the name of Ned Buntling, who would write a story, which was mostly fictional and made up by Buntling himself, that would start to develop the idea of Cody or Buffalo Bill's legend. That story was then published in New York Weekly and adapted into a very successful novel. Subsequent novels would follow and then his legacy would truly be crystallized by the development and touring of his amazing Wild West show. So when people have asked like, oh, wait, Buffalo Bill was real? Yeah, he was real. Are his stories real? 99% of that, no. It is so heavily fictionalized for it, but it is all based off of the real person who was himself a very crazy and impressive man. Also, between the time where uh, the first story about him was written and the time where he started performing his show, Cody spent time writing as a scout for the U.S. Army during the Indian Wars. And so he received the Medal of Honor, which was then taken back home once the Army made different medals with different requirements and the Medal of Honor became significantly harder to obtain. I covered this before in actually one of my videos. Remember when I did the whole thing on the, 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 the guys who stole the train and they earned the Medal of Honor? Fun fact for anyone. Do you know what the first qualification was to earn the Medal of Honor? 
Don't die. Close. Very close. Don't go home. You just showed up and stayed showing up. Yeah. So the, the first thing that happened is uh, the Medal of Honor was issued to soldiers that stayed for just a little bit longer when their 90 day commitment uh, commitment was up. Because when the Civil War first broke out and that is when the Medal of Honor was introduced, they thought it was going to be a super short war and it was going to be decided almost immediately. So both sides called up their soldiers for periods of like 90 days. That's it. And so when they realized like, oh, crap, this war is actually going to go on longer. Uh, all of our soldiers that we called up here are about to go home. They literally end their uh, their their commitment in two weeks. Shoot. OK, well, listen, anyone that stays gets a medal. What are we calling it? The Medal of Honor. Oh, man, I would have stayed. I love a good medal. I'd have been like, sign me up. I have nothing to lose. Yep. So then it became significantly harder to get later on but that was like the initial stages so there was a lot of medal of honors that were given out in the beginning i just realized what i said that for (laughs) (laughs) i actually have a lot to lose my bad yes you do unfortunately that weird little cut that we had right there is uh gabby having gotten sick and having to go inside and then we're back here recording this the next day and she is feeling even worse and cannot participate in for the rest of this podcast episode So here we are here in the end is me telling the story to go ahead and finish things off here. I hope that you all enjoy it. Uh, I I will say this, the more support and love that you guys give for this podcast, for the show, for all the production and everything that we do, the less likely for something like this to happen, because that way she would potentially be able to get out of her job in the future that is continuously making her sick and leading to this exact same scenario. So anyway, on with the story that we were continuing with. Medal of Honor, right. So the Medal of Honor was taken from Buffalo Bill. His family ended up petitioning it like a hundred years later and getting it back. So that happens. This was a huge letter writing campaign that they do. And they finally, finally managed to get it done. So that is the Wild Bill recap up to this point. So Cody had been running his show for essentially a decade, and he'd become one of the most recognizable celebrities on the planet. So our couple goes and rushes to make an appointment with Cody, eagerly wanting to be a part of his show. And upon meeting him, they were turned down. See, Cody was already an accomplished marksman, but he didn't really see how he could use Oakley in his show. He didn't think such a tiny woman was going to have the actual endurance that was necessary in order to perform a show shooting so accurately night after night after night. But that is precisely what it was that she was able to do. He didn't know. There was no test. There was nothing else. And besides, the bigger issue potentially was that he already had a number of marksmen who were already on the show's payroll. If you recall those earlier guys that we had talked about, uh, like Bogardus and his children. Yeah, that was that that was their whole thing. They were the guys who were there. But they were not going to be there forever. And that is when a really big point of fate just had to come in, step in, intervene, and really change things up for Buffalo Bill Cody. See, his show had just left Louisiana, and it was loading onto a steamboat that was headed up the Mississippi when it sustained damage and began to sink. Now, all of Bogardus's clan's firearms and equipment, everything that they used to run their show, yeah, that was still on the boat. So... With much of his family's shooting powers, all that just kind of um, went down with the ship. 
they ended up leaving that very same night because they had no actual ability to participate in the show. So now that Frank and Annie are uh, are there, they hear this event. They send a message requesting an audition with Cody and Cody not really having much of an option at the moment to do anything else is kind of forced to accept this, to agree to an audition and see what it is that Annie is capable of. And oh boy, does he finally see what she is capable of. He becomes a true believer himself. The butlers get hired, and Oakley is then poised to be introduced to the world. And so Buffalo Bill's Wild West show became like a visual representation of a country having a midlife crisis. And so you're going to wonder at this point, like, oh, what do I mean? What am I talking about? Well, you have to understand this, that the United States is a country that is barely 100 years old at this point, and it is turning into a major industrial power very, very quickly. But it still remembers when it was young and its hair was longer. It used to ride a motorcycle and chase buffalo all day. So Bill is basically showing America reliving its glory Wild West days. Like the Wild West isn't really a thing at this point in the 1800s. That was decades earlier. By the late 1800s, it was gone. If you've ever, um, if anyone in here who's watching or listening has ever played Red Dead Redemption, and they see what is happening with John Marston, the main character of the first game, and you're watching the death of the Wild West. That was happening, and now you have a guy that is going around putting on a show, drumming up all this old memorabilia, essentially, for people to reminisce about from what was the Cowboys. Like, What was all this stuff? You would have these larger-than-life figures in the show that were helping people right in front of them, see an idea of what they were trying to relive from their personal memories in some cases. There really was no show like it in American history. A combination of a circus, a stage show, a racetrack, a rodeo, a history exhibit, a Roman Coliseum. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was like a live recreation of exactly what would lure so many immigrants to come and try their luck in a new land. There were horses, There were deer, live buffalo even. It gave as close to a reproduction as was possible, especially considering the time and the technology, of the adventure and the rugged individualism that would form America as a country. It was an education. It was motivation. It was inspiration. But most importantly, and this is the biggest factor that everyone who is watching or listening has to remember for any story, because I could be as dry of a person that is telling this as possible, You would not be listening otherwise. It is entertaining. At least I hope to God that you all find that I'm entertaining in some of the ways that I speak, especially since I'm missing my wife now sitting here next to me. But that's what happens when you get sick. So Annie was given a rather low spot on the bill, but she was not going to have any of that. No, 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 no. She was better. And within a few performances, she had already become an audience favorite. She was a natural entertainer. She knew exactly how to grab the attention of the crowd. She would stumble or trip or skip into the arena purposefully in order to make the people think that, oh, this is just some inexperienced young girl. This is someone that is going to be just coming in here and giving us a little show. She would blow kisses at the crowd. She would wave at them. So it's this sweet, petite little girl. 
And then all of a sudden she raises her weapon. And if there was a soundtrack playing at that moment, it would have switched from like this cutesy little happy-go-lucky music to just a death metal concert in the span of 30 seconds. She would just shoot one up high in the air. Frank would toss up two at a time. She'd hit those. And now, now the audience is paying attention. And then it would just keep on going. She'd hit three. It would change into different rotating positions. There would be three glass balls. She'd hit them all. And then she would do one after the other, shaking her head at Frank and shouting for him to get more. Then she'd start tossing the balls into the air herself and shooting them. Meanwhile, Frank is trying to load the weapons like a madman because she is firing off shots accurately so fast that people just can't seem to keep up. She'd have a shotgun in her hand. She'd hit both targets. She'd begin up tossing the next two, hitting both. She would do this multiple times and then tell Frank to toss up three at a time, and then she would hit three, then four, then five, all the way up to six targets that would be thrown into the air, shooting them all without missing any. And that increase in speed at which things would go boom naturally would excite the audience even more. But Annie, Annie was just getting started. She would start shooting things with revolvers left-handed as she was good with both hands. She was an amazing shot with a rifle too. She would turn the gun upside down or sideways and make shots like she would go gangster style. One of the most impressive shots was when she would turn the gun backwards and laying it on her shoulder. Then she would produce a handheld mirror, line up the shot and hit the target. One of Annie's personal favorites was to have Frank hold up a playing card from 30 paces away and she would shoot it through the heart in the center of the card, or if he turned the card to see where it was on edge facing her, she would cut the card in half with the shot. She would also have someone else throw up playing cards into the air and then would hit it multiple times before hitting the ground. She would even shoot the card edge on out of Frank's hand, then shoot the half that had been shot off again before it hit the ground. It was insane. It was truly insane. In March of 1884, shortly after joining the show, Annie was being watched performing her act by the famous Native American leader, Chief Sitting Bull. He had just been paroled at this point by the U.S. government after leading the last defiant contingent of indigenous Americans for years, and eventually across the Canadian border a couple of years earlier. Unfortunately, they'd encountered difficulty in Canada with neighboring indigenous people, and would have to either return or starve. He loved his people more than he loved watching them starve, so he had returned to the U.S. And at this point, he was world famous, one as a great leader, and two as a leader with unmatched bravery. But at that point, he was also unemployed, unfortunately. And after being released by the government, Sitting Bull just didn't really know what to do with himself. So Bill, like Bill, Cody... The guy who, of all people, would seem like the least inclusive person of all, as this is the romanticization of the West, contacted him. But you also got to remember, it's the romanticization of the West. Having a Native American in there, like an actual war chief, oh, that was going to be good. He was already putting together a show that was about Indian wars, as they were called at the time. And he wanted it to exude authenticity. Not just a bunch of white dudes that were dressed up like for the Boston Tea Party or anything like that. And so amazingly, 
Cody paid a very fair wage and he took care of his performers for the most part. He didn't treat his Native American performers like they were lesser people. He didn't discriminate based off gender, especially after seeing what Annie had to teach him. So Sitting Bull was brought in to play himself, a role he had literally been preparing for his entire life. And this was the setting for the first time that Annie and Sitting Bull would meet. It was at one of his first shows with Bill, and they were performing in Minnesota. He watched her perform her show in amazement. A reporter present that night would recall later that Oakley had playfully skipped on stage, lifted her rifle, and aimed the barrel at a burning candle. And in one shot, she snuffed out the flame with a whizzing bullet. Sitting Bull watched her knock corks off of bottles and then slice through a cigar that Butler had held in his teeth. This chief was so impressed that he offered to pay $65 just to have his picture taken with her. Which you have to remember, considering the conversion of this time here, right, and the fact that he had been in some serious trouble before, this was the equivalent of offering someone around two grand, like $2,000 today, in order to take a picture with someone. But you see, Sitting Bull knew that something was different about Annie. He could sense that she was exceptional. The results of her shooting were only the physical evidence. He was utterly convinced that she was blessed or gifted, as he had put it, by supernatural powers, something that had to be necessary in order to be able to shoot so well with both hands. So this unlikely pair gradually became closer and closer as they spent more time together. Sitting Bull would have seemed like an old wise father figure that she never actually got to have. It was just something nice. She never really had a father figure, so she recognized in this something of actual value and potential. He symbolically would essentially adopt her, uh, thereafter naming her Watanya Cecilia. This translates to Little Sure Shot, and she got that name throughout the rest of her career. Really, I mean, who can blame her? What a badass way to get a nickname from another badass of history. The truly most impressive part about Annie's skill, though, no one ever taught her how to shoot. She taught herself. For someone to be self-taught, natural at most things, is exceptionally rare and special. And Sitting Bull picked up on this. Regardless, Oakley and Sitting Bull would remain close and have a special relationship all the way up until he would die. So Annie is going around impressing people left and right, and quickly gets her act moved right up from the bottom of the list to being one of the most prominent parts of the show, placed as the very first act after the initial grand procession that started the show. In the first year of being part of the show, Annie would perform over 150,000 people in over 40 cities, showing many of them for the first time that a woman could shoot just as well and, in fact, better than most men. In March of 1887, the entire Wild West show set sail from New York Harbor all the way to London in order to play for Queen Victoria herself, which... I want you to imagine this. Imagine packing up 120 staff, the crew, the performers, 97 of who were American Indians on their first ship voyage of any kind, 180 horses, 18 buffalo, 10 elk, 5 Texas steers, 4 donkeys, and 2 deer, all on a steamship named the State of Nebraska, and they're heading across the Atlantic Ocean for England. Of course, everyone is excited. This is a really big deal. But this would be a dramatic turn of events, as it was the first tour that would include Buffalo Bill's newest discovery. 
15-year-old Californian sharpshooter Lillian Smith. Now, Smith was the newest sensation with an absolute surgeon-like ability, I guess you could put it, with a rifle. And he shot rifles too, but she was known best for her ability with a shotgun. Cody even wagered thousands of dollars that no man could come up to that arena and outshoot Smith. The young upstart had kind of a bad attitude as well because she was overheard saying frequently, now that I'm on the show, Annie Oakley is done for. She even had a bodice that she would wear that said champion rifle shot of the world, which seems a little bit weak, honestly, in comparison to what we were talking about earlier with the ton of medals that Annie was wearing uh, after winning so many competitions, honestly. But what she didn't realize was just how competitive Annie Oakley was. Seeing the attention and the focus was starting to get pulled from her by someone who she saw and many people likely would see as undeserving. Annie and Frank began telling the press that she was only 20 years old when they'd tour a new city. Now, Annie was a full on 26 years old at this point, but remember, she was very petite. So her passing for 16 was absolutely believable. Frank, being her public relations representative, would play up that angle that you had two teens that were squaring it off like a high school catfight between the two cool girls in school, and the crowds loved it. Annie really had no respect for Lillian, especially since she would just start showing up and throwing shade from day one. She was heard making all these comments about her like, oh, Lillian, her ample figure, her poor grammar. People will see the truth of her eventually. And that's shade. And this is especially hilarious, considering the fact that while she had received a bit of private instruction, at least enough to be able to read and write from the Eddingtons at the Dark County Infirmary for, you know, the poor, Annie Oakley never actually had a classroom schooling. She was just speaking shit. I don't tell you you're ugly, but... I don't have to tell you because you know you're ugly. These women really did not like each other at all. So the show goes and pulls up into London, and this is in June. The queen herself appears in order to witness the attractions. And after the show, Annie and Lillian were called over to approach the royal spectator box. Lillian eagerly rushes forward in order to show off her Winchester repeating rifle to the queen, which mortified Annie because she thought that it was disrespectful and crass to approach a world leader with a weapon in hand. Which is just another reason to kind of uh, dislike her. Now, while in London, the sharpshooters were able to take part in the most prestigious shooting event in all of Great Britain, the annual rifle competition at Wimbledon. So Lillian Smith shows up early on the first day, shoots terribly, and gets eliminated. I can only imagine that she was so arrogant that she either didn't sleep or something happened to where she let her confidence get the best of her. So she leaves upset, fuming. The next day, Annie shows up for her turn and wins with ease with a rifle. Now, I'm not sure if many of you caught how distinct that is. She was specialized in the shotgun And she beat the girl who would wear around something on her chest that would say champion rifle shot of the world. Yeah, they didn't that 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 didn't really matter as much for her at that point. So Annie becomes an international celebrity at this point and arguably even more famous than Buffalo Bill himself at this time. The London press is just a buzz with different stories about her. 
But during all this, that little bitter praise goblin, Lillian Smith, has a friend write a story for a major American sporting period or a periodical that claims that London and Europe had fallen in love with Smith and that Oakley had been forgotten as a relic of the past. That would prove to be the first time that Annie would deal with blatant slander in the press, also known as libel. And it would prove to be something that would plague her again and again and again in her life. Now, after this time, Annie and Bill had a little bit of a falling out and the two would part ways for a couple years. That is until Bill was preparing to go on his show and perform at the Paris World Exposition in 1889. See, Bill at that point had been a little bit overshadowed by Annie's fame, and it's possible that that could have been a motivating factor between the two of them separating as they did after the London trip. But Annie had held her cards close to the chest and had said to explain it would take too long to tell. She didn't want to reveal too much. He knew that he needed her back for the Paris trip and the subsequent European tour. He knew that he needed her more than he'd let on before. And so it's really interesting to note that when the Wild West show headed to Paris, Annie Oakley was on board that ship that was heading across the Atlantic. And that girl, that hussy, Lillian Smith, she was nowhere to be seen. She also wasn't going to be a part of this story again. It is very possible that Annie ended up using her advantageous position for negotiation in order to get rid of Smith for good in just one big move. So Smith would never perform for Bill again after this point. And so when the show stopped in Germany, you had Kaiser Wilhelm II that was incredibly impressed with Annie's skill. Yes, again, that Wilhelm II, the one who ended up fanning the flames that would light World War I. And it's during the part of the show where Annie would ask if anyone would be brave enough to risk their life in the arena. Typically, Frank would shout out that he was brave enough to go stand in front of Annie and have her shoot the cigar out of his mouth. Instead, Wilhelm stands up and he shouts that he was brave enough and walks into the arena. And so when she tries to dissuade him, Wilhelm stays insistent that he knew that she was not going to miss. He held up his cigar to his mouth. And after pausing for a quick breath and to focus as she is shooting at a literal world power leader right here, she shoots the ashes out of the end of his cigar. She would later joke that, you know, if she had only been uh, a poor shot, potentially World War One might not have happened. (laughs) So a few years go by and 1893 rolls around and now you have Chicago that is preparing to put on the massive world fair called the 1893 Columbian Exposition. We talked about this before. If you have not seen or heard that podcast episode that we did on it, which has two parts here, unless you're on Patreon where it's like the full thing, check it out. Really good. I love all the stuff that is in here. And this is where they really come in to be a part of it. It was one of the greatest spectacles that was to be ever created by mankind in its history. And Buffalo Bill wanted to be in on the action so badly that he could taste it. But when he approached Daniel Burnham, who was the man who was in charge of the fair in order to be part of the festivities, he was denied. The commission put together a plan that the events that the Wild West show were going to be putting on were just too crude to be a part of. They were too violent for the fair. They wanted to show how 
sophisticated and grand they were, not this honky-tonk Wild West show. Which, you have to imp- uh, like note that this was very early on in the fair's design, way before Burnham was going on to hire a bunch of the marketing people, like that genius Saul Bloom, who was going to organize and entertain all the entertainment for the Midway. If this had happened later, Bill would have ended up getting accepted more than likely. But since this was the initial stages, it wasn't going to happen. But Bill was fed up with this. This pissed him off. He did not appreciate the treatment that he had received. And so he goes and does something a little bit wild. He decides to buy 16 acres of land that is directly across the street from the fair's main entrance. And then he sets up his own show and at many points was actually drawing bigger crowds than the fair due to the fact that many visitors would think that Bill's fair was actually the show itself. Just that big. So they would think and they would come out thinking when they were done that this show that they were putting on was in fact the big one because it was just that much worth it. They were not going to leave disappointed. Spectators were going to go and witness reenactments of Buffalo Hunt, the capture of a stagecoach, the Pony Express mail run, a trick horseback ride thing. Just so so much that they would put in. The Congress of Rough Riders, one of Bill's most popular exhibits, it showcased the expertise of horsemen of several nationalities, including the American Cowboy, the American Indian, the Cossack, the Mexican Vaquero, the Riffian Arab, the Southern American Guacho, the Filipinos, the Costa Ricans, even Hawaiian showmen. It had everyone that was there. I say everyone. Of course, it's still a limited amount, but it was such an incredibly wide-reaching group of people. Bill's larger-scale productions had begun when James A. Bailey of Barnum & Bailey Circus fame started to join Bill's outfit and turned Bill's shows into these massive, rolling, high-energy-packed spectacles of what the West was all about. Calamity Jane had joined the Wild West show by this point as a storyteller, recalling tales of the Wild West and what it was like to live in the lawless town of Deadwood, South Dakota, with legends such as Wild Bill Hickok and Seth Bullock. Prior to this time, the show would end with a simulated Indian attack on a settler's cabin where Cody would ride in with a group of cowboys and save the settlers from annihilation. But... By this point, it ended with a reenactment of Custer's Last Stand, with Bill himself playing the role of George Custer. The 1893 Chicago World Fair was going to prove to be the most impactful event as far as cementing the worldwide reputation of both Bill and Annie, and it could not have been more successful for the show at a time when the world was drastically changing. Mark Twain would comment upon seeing the show in Chicago. He would say, It is often said on the other side of the water that none of the expeditions which we send to England are purely and distinctly American. If you take the Wild West show over there, you can remove that reproach. The show was exciting. It was engaging. It was purely unique. It was an insane spectacle that allowed people to glimpse the last fading image of the American frontier. And going into the 20th century, the entertainment consumption of the U.S. would change. Actors and singers and comedians were becoming wildly popular, and that would only continue to increase with the advent of the kinetoscope by Thomas Edison. 
The kinetoscope was that thing that we talked about back during the um, back during the World's Fair, where it was first put on display there in 1893 at the expo and would be a massive game changer. Essentially, this was the very first motion picture camera. Buffalo Bill and Thomas Edison had actually become fast friends in Chicago, and Edison had built Cody's world's largest electrical power plant at the time in order to run the Wild West show for such an extended period of time. Edison then went back to New Jersey after the expo to work more on the kinetoscope. He wanted to have worthwhile people to film, so he called in Bill and some of his performers, including the butlers, to his film studio, which was then known as Black Maria in West Orange, New Jersey. This was the world's first film production studio, a building that had a retractable roof and revolved to catch better sunlight in order to allow for clear filming. The film shot that day of Frank tossing up targets and Annie shooting them without missing are actually currently in the Library of Congress as some of the first and most important uses of film in history. They're easily found online if you're trying to look them up, and they really don't take much time to watch. You really should check them out. They're incredibly fascinating snapshots of what things were like at this time. So please, after this is done, really just go look that up. It's really cool. Ironically, these most high-profile cases or high-profile appearances in history would actually start to mark the beginning of the end for the Wild West show. The writing was on the wall, and motion pictures as well as radio, now these were the sources of the entertainment goldmine that would be harvested over the future. Over the next 25 years, the appeal of exhibitions of Wild West life just really stopped being as interesting to people and the general public when they could just instead go down to the local movie theater and watch cowboy pictures. But for the rest of the 1890s, though, Bill and Annie were at the height of their fame. In 1895 alone, they played in 131 cities. But it was in late 1901 that fate would again alter the course of Annie's life. The show was riding on a train from Charlotte, North Carolina, to Danville, Virginia. The show was traveling on three trains, riding one after the other, and a freight train was coming from the other direction and had diverted itself from the main tracks, waiting for the show or waiting for the train the show was riding to pass. It's possible at this point that the train's engineer was distracted or tired or just uninformed, but he thought after the first train passed that there were no more traffic on the line. So he switched back to the main line, resumes his journey, only to crash head on into the next train that had most of the show's uh, like items and its performers in it. So this crash killed 110 horses, including Bill's own horses, Old Pap and Old Eagle. Those that didn't die immediately had to be put down due to the broken legs and other bones. Nearly all of the show's other livestock, such as the buffalo and the steer, all were killed. But amazingly enough, no people were killed in the crash. Many were injured, yes, but none were killed. Annie's injuries also included damage to her spine so severe that the doctors had to take her into surgery and then said she would likely never walk again. But of course, this is Annie Oakley we're talking about, so she doesn't take no for an answer, regardless of the situation or what her body should technically be capable of. She flipped the middle finger at the medical establishment and rehabilitated herself enough to the point where she could walk and function normally, 
including performing again. That being said, the damage was done already as far as the Wild West show went, and it would have to go out of business briefly. Because she was injured so seriously, Annie and Frank would part ways with Bill and the Wild West show at the time. So Annie is recuperating and recovering and eventually goes on to perform in a play that is loosely based on her life. So that's actually a rather interesting point. Uh, But you all remember when I said that she would continue to be plagued by harassment and slander in the press? Yeah, this is this is exactly what we were referring to here. So on August 11th, 1903, it was reported in the newspaper magnet by William Randolph Hearst, Chicago newspapers that Oakley had gone and stolen a pair of men's underwear in order to sell in order to get money to buy cocaine because she was a homeless addict that was now doing time in prison. They claimed that she was in a shattered condition, destitute and pitiful. And because Hearst was one of the biggest names in the newspaper industry, the Associated Press picked up the story and it became spread to newspapers all across the country. The woman arrested in Chicago and reported on the papers was actually a burlesque dancer lookalike who was posing as Oakley. Hearst had allowed the story to run because cocaine had just been declared illegal and stories of people being caught up in legal trouble after it made huge points in the newsstands. So if you all remember that image that Annie had specifically tried to avoid her entire career about like her clothing choices and how she wanted to dress seriously. Yeah, you, you, you can imagine that Annie Oakley was not going to take this thing lying down. Well, I mean, she might have, of course, because she was recovering from surgery at that point on her spine. But no, no, she was not going to just let this pass. This was a time where if you were a public figure portrayed as an American hero, the threat of scandal and impropriety could ruin one career, their financial security, their future opportunities, everything. And these concerns had to be multiplied if you were a woman at the time. So Annie now devoted a significant amount of time to her clearing her name and lawyered the hell up. She sent off telegrams to every single major newspaper in the country. Many of them would then have to issue retractions and apologies. Some of them would actually go and apologize to Oakley personally as well. And those who wouldn't retract the story, she filed libel lawsuits against them. And for those who think like, okay, well, at this point, she's probably just trying to secure money for herself. No, in most cases, she spent a lot more money to file the lawsuits than she would ever win in settlements, specifically because she made sure that she could hire the best lawyers and appear directly in court wherever possible in order to argue her point in person time and time again, traveling across the country in order to clear her name. That's not cheap. She did this out of principle. She would later be quoted as saying, that terrible piece nearly killed me. The only thing that kept me alive was the desire to purge my character. She then spent the next six years traveling across the country and suing 55 newspapers. No one had ever seen libel lawsuits like this in the history of the United States. Annie had worked so hard to be the person that someone could look up to as a role model and someone who made something of themselves. She never wanted to be seen as a victim or anything like someone looked at for terrible circumstances ever again. Really, it's easy to draw a line reaching all the way back to her childhood here as it just echoes of the abuse that she had gotten at the hands of the wolves. William Randolph Hearst didn't just fight her in court. He actually went as far 
as to send an investigator to Greenville, Ohio, Annie's home, in order to try and dig up dirt on her that he could use in court to discredit her or cast doubt on her character. The arena, at this point, had changed for Annie. Now she commanded the attention of those in the court. In her late 40s at the time, she frequently would dress in all black with very subtle diamond earrings. Her now graying hair was pinned up to the top of her head, and it's said that she exhibited a kind of air of perfect refinement and polished courtesy, which is very surprising considering everything that she came from. She was a lady, and a refined one at that. But despite that, she was a fighter. She was a fighter through and through to her core, and she understood that she was going to need to withstand a barrage of humiliating questions about her past. Prosecutors would ask her about drug use, sexual proclivities, prior crimes that she may have committed, her mental health, her motivations, even her relationship with her husband, Frank. But she withstood all of this with dignity and grace. In the end, out of the 55 lawsuits, she won 54 of them. William Randolph Hearst lost in court as well and was ordered to pay $27,000 in damages, which, adjusting for inflation, that would be more than $800,000 today. Most of the awards were significantly smaller, though, and she actually ended up losing money over the course of her six-year campaign. But ultimately, she did end up clearing her name, which still endures as a powerful figure and identity to this day. So... Maybe out of principle, Annie was actually onto something. But of course, at this point, her performing days were behind her. She knew it, but Annie still really wanted to help others, and so she traveled with Frank across the country, teaching women how to shoot. She always championed the idea of women becoming just as capable and possible and self-reliant as any man could. She was adamant that women could learn to shoot and even advocated for women carrying firearms while unaccompanied, to protect themselves, which seems like a very smart idea. Back in 1898, she even offered to lead a company of 50 female sharpshooters, whom she personally trained in battle in the Spanish-American War, but was turned down. Man, if only she had been offering help to the Russians at the time in World War I, then that would have probably been a different story. Potentially. When World War I would break out, she again actually offered to train American servicemen how to shoot, but was also rejected again. She had one last major performance at a charity event in 1922 at over 50 years old. Spectators who had seen her in Buffalo Bill's show said that she never put on a greater performance. She said she felt a little rusty, but still didn't miss a shot unless it was for dramatic effect. It was going to be her last dance, and it was going to be one that she would remember. Later that year, she would be in a car accident that actually shattered her ankles and fractured her hip. After that point, she was never going to be able to walk again without a leg brace. She knew somehow that the twilight of her life was approaching now, so she took all of her shooting medals, had them melted down, and then donated the proceeds to charity. She was 66, and she was starting to be tired all the time. Some have theorized that lead exposure from all of her years handling ammunition may have contributed to it, but regardless of the cause, it was on November 3rd, 1926, that Annie Oakley would die in her home in Greenville in her sleep. Frank had actually just fallen ill while traveling in Michigan and was not going to be able to be at her side. When he heard the news of his wife's death, his heart shattered. He refused to eat at that point and died just 18 days after Annie. They had been happily married for 50 years. They are buried beside each other in Greenville, Ohio, not far from Annie's childhood home. 
They never had any children for Frank and Annie. Life together was already enough of an adventure. They didn't need to do any more. And it's really easy to assume that if something does exist after this life, that they're having a really great adventure right now. The legacy of Annie Oakley is really one of rugged self-reliance. It's of recognizing one's talents, of strengths, of endurance, of surpassing what you thought may have only been possible in dreams and forging one's identity and place in a world, even if you started off really disadvantaged. She's the perfect example in history of not letting one life, your circumstances that you start out with, determine what the outcome of it is. She's also one of the greatest female role models in all of recorded history, which is not bad for a little farm girl from Ohio. Everyone, that has been the story of Annie Oakley. I do wish here in the end that my wife could have been here with me, but she is currently laying down in not the best of shape. She's another role model that I would like my daughter to look up to here in the future. Thank you, everyone who has listened. I hope you have a good rest of your day. I hope to see you next time. And please remember to like this video if you're watching on YouTube. Remember to leave us a review if you'd like onto whatever podcast service you listen to us on. Really anything that can pretty much help drive this channel going forward. Thank you all and goodbye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.